Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. For over a year now, we've been in this journey through the New Testament Gospel of John. And a few weeks ago, we arrived at John chapter 18, and I told you that the events described in these last four chapters of John's Gospel, chapters 18 through 21, are the central events in all of human history. And as we jump today into John chapter 18, starting at verse 19, we're going to see the story of Jesus begin to accelerate. Jesus was arrested at this garden called Gethsemane. He's brought to the father-in-law of the high priest's house, a man named Annas. John 18, starting at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they knew what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He was alluding to the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on in this world all around us. Kingdoms in conflict, in fact. Let me explain it this way. You don't have a soul. You are a soul and you have a body. You're a spiritual person wrapped in a physical body. You get that, right? That makes sense to you on some level. Like you're way more than brains and brawn. You're way deeper than mind and muscle. You understand that. And you live in a spiritual world wrapped in a physical dimension. So for you and me right now, we stand here in the intersection between the seen and the unseen, between the natural and the spiritual. And there's a battle going on in the spiritual. 
It's a battle of kingdom versus kingdom. Light versus darkness, hope versus despair, love versus hate, life versus death, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is led by, run by the prince of this world, the enemy of your soul, the devil. His goal? To destroy you. And while destroying you, use your life to destroy many others. Kingdoms in conflict. I don't think there's another place in the entire Bible where this is illustrated more powerfully and more clearly than right here in John chapter 18. Kingdom of God, kingdom of this world. Kingdom of God here represented by Jesus, kingdom of this world represented by religion. And really that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk to you about five differences between Jesus and religion. And my prayer for you right now, I know I'm not here, but I am praying for you right now. I know this will be informative, but more than that, I pray that it would be inspiring and challenging and encouraging for you also. Difference number one between religion and Jesus. Religion is demonic. Jesus is divine. What a weird series of trials. Like, they're having these trials for Jesus in the middle of the night. That's not even allowed in Jewish law, but these guys are in such a hurry to kill him. There's something awful about this whole situation. And then they get Jesus in a room and they try to force him to testify against himself. That doesn't happen in a free country. That doesn't happen in a free judicial system. That happens in a totalitarian dictatorship, right? You, you can't make someone testify against themselves. Maybe you've watched an American TV show before and you've heard someone say, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. You can't make me testify against myself. Well, Jewish law in the first century went even further. A person could not be asked to testify either for or against themselves. But here they are trying to make Jesus testify against himself. This is a sign of a totalitarian dictatorship. An example would be just a few decades from when these events took place. There was a man named Nero who became emperor of Rome. And he persecuted Christians. So what he would do is he would arrest a Christian and he would torture them and threaten them until they would testify against themselves, until they would confess to a crime that they didn't actually commit. And then he would have them publicly executed. Totalitarian dictatorships. More recent examples in history would be Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union. Totalitarian dictatorships are always based on lies, fear, and control. In Hitler's Germany... He had a minister of propaganda named Joseph Goebbels, minister of propaganda. Another way of saying that would be minister of lies. His job was to lie to the people of Germany, convince them that things that were wrong were actually right and things that were right were actually wrong. It was Joseph Goebbels' job to convince the people of Germany, you know what, it would be a great idea to try to eliminate an entire race of people off the earth. It would be a great idea to go to war against the rest of the world. Stalin's regime was based on lies also. He controlled all of the media. There was one newspaper. Stalin named it Pravda, which means truth, which is ironic because it was anything but true. Totalitarian dictatorships are also based on fear. Hitler had his secret police, the Gestapo, the SS, the SA, and the purpose of all these secret police forces was to convince the people of Germany that Hitler was always watching. The Nazis were always there to keep people in a constant state of terror. Stalin had his own secret police. 
the NKVD, which would later become known as the KGB. Totalitarian dictatorships, by the way, always have secret police forces. A chilling example of the fear that was exerted in the Soviet Union would be what is known as the cult of personality. If Stalin gave a public speech, when his speech was over, the, the, the audience would rise as one and give him a standing ovation. And they would stand there and they would clap and clap and clap and clap for a minute, two minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, ten minutes and more. Until finally someone got exhausted and sat down. But if you were the first one to sit down, you always had a fear that the NKVD would show up at your house that night. They would execute you or they would arrest you and send you to Stalin's system of prisons that he reserved for his enemies called the gulags. Lies, fear, and control. That's what Hitler did. That's what Stalin did. So let me make sure that I'm really clear with you today. Religion is a demonic, spiritual, totalitarian dictatorship. It's based on lies. Here's the big lie. You must save yourself. It's based on fear. Here's the big fear. You can't do it. Which leads to control. Control says, but if you do everything we tell you to do, you might just be okay. Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus isn't about lies, right? Think, think about this system of trials. At any point, Jesus could have said, Hey, you know what, guys? Turns out, you know, that whole stuff that I was saying about being the Son of God and the Messiah and the Savior, totally kidding. Totally kidding. I, I, I didn't really mean it. And at any point Jesus would have said that, he would have been spared from what is about to happen. But Jesus didn't recant. Why? Because what he had said is true. He is truth. And Jesus doesn't operate in fear. In fact, Jesus stepped into human history to alleviate fear. He came to bring us peace. He came to bring us hope. Just a couple chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 16, Jesus said it this way, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And Jesus is not about control. He's always about invitation. And that brings me to the second difference between Jesus and religion. Religion is about rules. Jesus is about relationship. Religion is about rules. Isn't it interesting? These guys really, really want to kill Jesus. But they're trying to hurry, right? Because they don't want to kill him on the Sabbath. Because if you want to kill an innocent person, if you want to railroad an innocent person to die wrongly, you can't do it on the Sabbath because that would be breaking some rules. When you base your life on a system of rules, things always get weird. Jesus isn't about rules. Jesus is about relationship. It always starts with an invitation. Jesus says, come, follow me. Let's do life together. Get to know me. Follow me. Learn from me. When you begin that relationship with Jesus, when you start following Jesus, you should never obey another rule again for the rest of your life. That's an interesting statement, so I'm going to say it again to make sure you heard it. When you begin a relationship with Jesus, 
when you follow Jesus, you should never obey another rule for the rest of your life. Now, maybe some of you are looking at me right now going, well, wait a minute, Mike, like, I've seen people who are in a real relationship with Jesus, and they've definitely changed, you know? They become a lot more like Jesus, more kind, more peace, more loving, more joy in their life. I've seen it all. So how does that happen if they're not obeying rules? Well, let me repeat. Jesus always starts with an invitation. Hey, come follow me. Walk with me. Get to know me. Learn from me. And that's what we do when we're in a relationship with Jesus. We become more and more and more like him. Not by obeying rules, but by uh, responding to, by accepting invitations. You know what I mean? So, So what I'm saying is this. When you walk with Jesus, you experience more power, more love, more hope, more joy, more courage, more strength. Not so that you can be in a relationship with him, but because you're in a relationship with him. Jesus is not about behavior modification. He's about heart transformation. And that brings me to the third difference between Jesus and religion. Religion is about the outside. Jesus is about the inside. These guys are like, man, we can't go into the the courtyard of Pilate's place, right? Because that would look bad. Religion is about the show. Jesus isn't. Although it is kind of funny, isn't it? Because when you think about it, there were some things that Jesus did during his ministry that put on quite a show, right? Like he turned water into wine. He fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. He healed people. He did these miracles. But it should be noted that the religious men, they never had any problem with Jesus' show. In fact, they wanted more. Hey, Jesus, can you do that water into wine thing again? That was amazing. Can, can you do the free lunch thing again? We really loved that. They were all about the show. This is why they plotted to kill Jesus, not the show, not the outside, but because Jesus came preaching, I want to save you from the inside out. I want to change your heart. I'm the Savior. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. So we're starting a, a series on Proverbs in January of next year, and I was just reading through Proverbs chapter 4 this week, and verse 23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, because it will determine the course of your life. Jesus' love for us, Jesus' plan for us is an inside-out plan. He wants to change your heart, and everything else will follow. And I love that. I love that. I think that's the kind of church we are. I think we're an inside-out church. I'm so thankful that so many people have heard of Southside. So many people are grateful that Southside is a church that is for our city, that we love our city, that we love our world. I love that we do our best to be kind, to extend kindness, to extend generosity, to get involved when people need help, when people are facing hardship, we get involved. But one of the things that we never forget is this. We love only because he loved us first. And his love changed our heart. So now we're able to love others. It was his kindness. It was his mercy. It was his generosity. It was his involvement in our lives that changes our heart enough that we can do the same for others. What an amazing opportunity. See, so we never lose sight of this. Everything we do. Every song that we sing, 
every time that we extend generosity, every time that we lend a helping hand, every sermon that we preach, we never forget. We're here to tell the world about Jesus because he's the one that can change everything from the inside out. The fourth difference between Jesus and religion is religion is about status. Jesus calls us to be students. It's kind of hard in this passage to like figure out all the status grabs, right? Okay, so you got Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. Okay, but then there's his father-in-law, Annas, and they call him the high priest too. Why? Oh, well, he was high priest, and so the Romans deposed him in 15 AD, but there's some rule that you have to call him high priest for the rest of his life, even though he's not high priest anymore. Okay, okay. And then there's the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, and the teachers of the law, and it's status, 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 status. Jesus says, don't worry about that stuff. Just be a student. Another way to put that would be Jesus loves you exactly how you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you just there. Keep learning. Keep learning. Keep learning. Don't get caught up in status. It's easy to do, you know? Money, popularity, awards, accolades. We can get caught up in that stuff. We can define ourselves by that stuff. Jesus says, don't bother. It's funny when you think about the way God views all of our status. It reminds me a little bit like when your daughter gets old enough to go to kindergarten, you know, and she finds out that your birthday is coming up and maybe she talks to her teacher and she makes a picture for you and she gives it to you and it says, happy birthday, you know, and you look at the picture and you're not really sure what it is. It could be a table. It could be a giraffe. It could be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. could be a horse. could be a guinea pig. You're really not sure but you love it so much and you stick it on your fridge. Not because it's such a great picture, but because you love her so much, you know? I think God views our status a little bit like that. Like all our achievements, all of our businesses, all of our finances, all of that stuff. We bring it to God and he says, that's so cute. And he takes and he, and, and God puts your picture on his fridge. Not because you're so great, but because his love for you is so great. So Jesus says, don't take yourself so seriously. Keep learning. Keep learning. Years ago, I read this book called Imagine Heaven, and there's a story in it about this world-famous artist. And he has a near-death experience, and he, and, he, and he has a life review with Jesus and a bunch of angels. And he's sitting there during his life review, and there's these big moments, right? Like he gets these big awards and these big accolades and all this recognition. And, and, and as those moments go by, Jesus and the angels, they don't like give it a thumbs down. They just barely even recognize it. And then this moment comes up. It's like the, the, the biggest moment of his life. Well, let me read it for you. I got to see when my sister had a bad night one night. How I went into her bedroom and put my arms around her. Not saying anything, I just lay there with my arms around her. As it turned out, that experience was one of the biggest triumphs of my life. I love that. Jesus says, hey, keep learning. Keep being a student. Because here's what I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you that sometimes stuff that seems so big, it's not that big. And sometimes things that seem real little are a lot bigger than you think. The fifth difference between Jesus and religion, religion is death. 
Jesus' life. Martin Luther once said that the human heart is like an idol factory. What he meant is that we're always going to find something to worship. It's not a matter of if we're going to worship, it's a matter of what, you know? Something's going to be the central pursuit of my life. And maybe you've heard people talk at church before and they say, if if it's anything but God, enough is never going to be enough. If your central pursuit of money, if your central pursuit is money, enough is never going to be enough. If it's sex, enough is never going to be enough. If it's pleasure, enough is never going to be enough. If it's popularity, enough is never going to be enough. And that's true, that's true, that's true. And maybe you've been in church for a long time and you think to yourself, well, yeah, 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 I got that. I got that, right? Like, I'm on that. Like, I get it. I, I worship God, you know? But, but I'll tell you something. The, the, the longer you spend in church, the more that you're going to have a temptation, almost constant. And it goes something like this. You'll start to look around the world and you'll think to yourself, I'm more well-behaved than them. Like, I'm a way better rule keeper than him, all right? And eventually, I'm better than them. Like, I think God's pretty happy to have me on his team. And so what happens then is we replace God with our performance. We're not worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping our own performance. And that's religion, and it's really, really deadly. Because remember I told you, like, if you worship money, enough is never enough. Well, if you worship your own performance, enough is never going to be enough. What's the standard perfection? You ain't there. Religion is death. It's death to your true self. Because now, if, if, if you're going to go down that road, you've got to start pretending. If you're going to look at them and go, I'm better than them, then you've got to pretend like you actually are, and you're not. And so if you ever met a really religious person, what you'll find is that at times you'll, you'll see arrogance, but it always ends in a place of misery because they know deep down inside they're pretending to be somebody that they're not. And they can't really keep up the charade. It starts in arrogance, ends in misery. And what do they say about misery? Misery loves company, you know? When I graduated with my teaching degree, I got a job at a high school that was connected to a church. In those first few years, I remember I was teaching English and history and social studies and phys ed, photography. I taught photography, which is super funny. I'll tell you some stories about Mike Manhas teaching photography sometime. But I coached, I coached. And in those early years, I coached girls volleyball. Now, maybe I've told you before that I coached basketball, and I did. I coached basketball for years. But my first few years of coaching, I coached girls volleyball. And i got to tell you, those teams were incredible. Like, we weren't very good when we started, but man, oh man, some of the best teams I've ever coached were those volleyball teams, and some of the most elite athletes I've ever worked with were some of those volleyball players. Anyways, so we have a home game. I think it's in my second year of teaching. And apparently, at one point, I was holding onto a clipboard, I stood up, I slammed the clipboard on the ground, and I called a timeout. Okay, I have no idea what happened in the match. I don't know anything except the next morning I used to arrive at school at about 4 a.m. every day to try to learn everything before I had to teach it. And I was there. Usually I'd be alone by myself in the school for hours and hours and hours before anybody showed up. But on this particular morning, about an hour and a half before people normally began to arrive, a man came walking into my classroom. 
Now, I had never talked to him before, but I recognized him. He was a leader from the church that kind of ran the school. So in a sense, when I looked at him, he felt like he was like one of my bosses, okay? So he walks into my classroom and he said this. He said, do you want to talk about the incident? And I could tell he wasn't happy. And I'm panicking because I actually have no idea what he's talking about. I mean, I got lots of incidents in my life. Like, like, I, I'm try- like my mind is just flying. I'm trying to figure out what he's talking about. And so I just don't say anything. I was just looking at him. And then he says, again, do you want to talk about the incident? And I was like, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what you mean. He said, I think you know exactly what I mean, Mike. I said, I don't. I really don't know what you mean. And I'm scared, and he's mad. He says, well, a friend of mine called me last night and told me what you did. Oh, by the way, do you remember earlier I said that totalitarian dictatorships always have a secret police? Religious people always have a secret police. They always have a network of people to catch other people doing something wrong. He said, a friend of mine called me last night and told me that you slammed your clipboard on the floor. Is that true? And I didn't remember whether I did or whether I didn't, but it totally sounded like something I would do. So I was like, yeah. He's like, do you know the fruits of the Spirit? And I did. I want to tell you right up front. I did. I did know the fruits of the Spirit. So I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, why don't you tell them to me? And I was just so nervous. I just was like, he says, okay, okay, okay. Maybe you can say them with me. And so he started going through them. Love, and I was supposed to say them with him, you know, joy, peace, pastry, patience, you know, all the way through. And then we got, he got to the last one. He's like, do you know what the last fruit of the Spirit is? And I did. I did. I'm like, self-control. He had never sat down. He was standing. I was seated. That's kind of a posture. Religious people usually stand above. But anyways, he turned around and, and, and he walked out of my classroom. And then he stopped at the door and he said to me, learn the fruits of the Spirit. Memorize the fruits of the Spirit. And remember the fruits of the Spirit. Next time you're going to do something to embarrass yourself, embarrass this school, and embarrass God. Question, do you think when he left my classroom that day, he left a residue of life? Or kind of a residue of death? See, it felt pretty deadly to me because I was 25 years old. It was Corinne and me and Tori and Lucas, just the four of us, but we had moved out to Chilliwack for this job, and I kept thinking that the principal was going to show up in my classroom at any time and say, man, you're fired. And so for about the next two and a half weeks, I just kept expecting it, but it never happened. And then two and a half weeks later on a Friday night, I used to work on the weekends at Earl's Restaurant in Abbotsford back when Abbotsford had an Earl's. I didn't make enough at that school to provide for my family, so I waited on the weekends. So on a particular Friday night, I must have got off a little bit early because it was about 10 o'clock on a Friday night, and I was turning right onto South Fraser Way out of the Earl's parking lot. Now, as I checked, there was no one in the lane that I was going to turn into. But as I was turning, a big lifted truck pulled into the lane that I was turning into. And I was like, oh, he was going really fast. And I tried. I punched my ancient Volkswagen rabbit diesel, but it was gutless, and I couldn't get out of this guy's way. 
And so next thing I know, I look in my rearview mirror and all I see is his grill and his high beams. And all I hear is his horn just honking, you know, constant. Then he swings out beside me. He rolls down his passenger window with one hand on his steering wheel. He leans out and flips me the bird from his lifted truck. Now I'm kind of mad and I look up and I recognize him. You know who it was? It was the guy who told me to memorize the fruits of the Spirit. And he recognized me, and he could tell that I recognized him. So he got back in his truck, he punched it, and he was gone. You know what's interesting? He never talked to me again. Like, we would be in the same room sometimes, and he would always go to, like, the farthest part of the room away from me. He would never make eye contact. And honestly, I was 25 years old. I was just happy. Like, I had a pretty good inkling that I wasn't going to get into trouble for throwing clipboards anymore. I took full advantage. I threw my share of clipboards in my time. I should mention that to you. But I, I guess if it happened now, I would probably walk up to the guy and go, you're hilarious. <laughs> hey, do you know the fruits of the Spirit? And have a good laugh and say, hey, man, we all struggle. But it's sad, right? Because religion is death. It starts out maybe with arrogance, but it always ends up in misery because I'm really pretending to be somebody who I know that I can't be. Well, Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus is life. I told you that these last four chapters of John's gospel, they describe the central events in all of human history. The cross of Jesus Christ stands above and beyond all of human history. The Bible says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he spoke these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But it's interesting because the English translation, or most of our English translations, they don't get it wrong, but they don't get it completely right either. A more accurate description of that sentence that Jesus spoke from the original Greek would be this. And Jesus kept saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they jeered and laughed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they spit on him and mocked, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And that's it, right? That's life. <clears throat> Forgiveness. That's, that's life. That's our only hope. Father, f forgive the guy who threw the clipboard. Forgive the guy that flips the bird on South Fraser Way. Father, forgive the religious. Forgive the immoral. Forgive the lost. Forgive the lonely. Forgive the broken. Forgive Mike Manis. Forgive you. When I was writing this sermon... It brought back some memories of being a history teacher. And I thought of an essay 
written in 1980 by a British journalist named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was 77 years old when he wrote it. So he has this unique perspective. He lived through almost all of the 20th century. And he looks back at it, and this is what he wrote. We look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling. Revolutions and counter-revolutions. Wealth accumulating and then dispersed. One nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier still. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ahsoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than all of the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one little lifetime. All gone with the wind. England now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin a forbidden name in the regime he helped to found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by the fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and of the great victories of the Don Quixotes of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime. All in one lifetime. All gone. Gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these self-styled, sullen supermen and imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one. Because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone, mankind, mankind might still have hope. The person of Jesus Christ. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads. It just struck me as I was reading through that this week how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Just change the names. If it's not Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler, who is it in 2023? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. High highs and low lows, ebbs and flows. And I wanted just to give you this picture that came to me. I want you to imagine all of history gathered in one gigantic field, one gigantic stadium. All of us, all of us, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every era, all gathered. All the ebbs, all the flows, all the kingdoms rising, all the kingdoms falling, all gathered together. And in the middle of this massive, massive historical gathering, stands the cross of Jesus Christ. And one man, bruised and broken and bloody, 
who kept saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're tired of chasing after status. Maybe you're tired of pretending to be someone you're not. Maybe you're tired of trying to obey rules or pursue things that you think will finally fully satisfy and everything has let you down. I want to tell you, I want to direct you again to this man. I want to direct you to Jesus. That through whom and for whom and by whom salvation is not only possible, but it's here right now. It's not about your performance. It's just about accepting his invitation. So if today is the day that you want to step into that relationship with Jesus, he just wants to walk with you, wants you to get to know him, he wants to teach you, he wants to give you a life worth living today, tomorrow, and forever. If that's you, do you want to just raise your hand? Whether you're online or in person, if today is your day, I would love it if you could do that. If your hand is up, you can put it down right now. I'm just going to pray out loud. I just invite you to pray silently along with me. So Jesus, we pray for forgiveness. Thank you that you died so we could live. Today I hand you my past. I hand you my shame. I hand you my inadequacy. And I take from you a fresh start. Jesus, I ask that you would be not only my Savior, but my Lord. I pray that you would give me the strength to follow you one next step at a time. And Jesus, for all of us, no matter how long we've been at church, I pray that you would deliver us from religion, that we would never lose the awe and the wonder of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We are never, ever, ever going to forget your grace and your mercy and your love. And we're going to live not defeated lives, pretending to be someone we're not, but joyful, grateful, abundant lives where we try to show the love that you've given to us to a world in desperate need. We love you so much and we thank you in your name. Amen. Can we celebrate that, everybody? I want to tell you again, I love you. I'm just so proud to be a part of this church, this inside-out movement called Southside. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And to stay up to date with all things Southside, follow at Southside underscore church on Instagram. We love you guys. The best is yet to come.